Hello, everybody, and welcome again to Nerd of the Third Power, your one-stop shop for all things nerdy and awesome. I am your host, Master of Ceremonies, Dr. Gonzo. Kat is uh, frantically on her way uh, home from uh, work, so uh, she'll get in when she gets in. But uh, Skyblaze, how are you this evening? I have been playing with technology all day. Yes, uh, is this now? Is this the uh, the 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 Frankenstein's monster that you're building to attempt to cheat death, or is this a new project? We don't talk about that. Move on. Uh, no, it's a. I'm I'm making a, a retro gaming emulator out of a Raspberry Pi. Oh, how's that going? Um, reasonably well. It hit a couple of stumbling blocks to do with my, my SD card being a pain in the backside, but. I've got it, I've got it sort of working. You know, I keep hearing about all these things people are doing with the with the the Raspberry Pis, and I'm I'm frankly like convinced that at some point someone's going to figure going to achieve true artificial intelligence on a Raspberry Pi. You know, it wouldn't greatly surprise me. Uh, if you fancy um, amusing yourself for a few hours, there's a guy um, called uh, there's, well, there's a show called the Ben Heck Show. You can find it on YouTube. Um, who does a lot of stuff with the Raspberry Pi, and a lot of it's really cool. He does a lot of uh, like retro gaming systems. He may he managed to make a Dreamcast portable at one point, which was pretty impressive. Okay, and uh, Brian, how are you this evening? I'm doing all right. Uh, I've had a long weekend. My throat probably is a little sore right now, so if I start to go quiet, that's kind of why. Okay, all righty. Okay, uh, I myself uh, am dealing with a, a, a leak in my ceiling that's uh, rather uh, significant. So if I suddenly uh, vanish and you hear uh, screams and the sound of running water, uh, I, it, the, 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 it means the dam has burst and I have been washed away. Usually I edit those, the screams out. And a wild cat appears! Hello, hello. <laughs> how are you? How are I'm you? sorry, should I have just repeated my name a few times in a high squeaky voice? <laughs> right, what okay. kind of Pokeball do we need to catch a wild cat? Uh, um, uh, I, Brian, did you say it would probably have to be a great ball or better? It definitely have to be a great ball or better. That's my theory. Yeah. I want to know what kind of Pokeball it would take to catch a wild, uh, a wild projectionist John. He hasn't been in here in a while. We need a couple more lures. <laughs> he, he's probably con like continent locked or something like. We're not even going to be able to get them here. <laughs> okay, but uh, yes, uh, the gang is all here, uh, minus John, who uh, we hope will return soon. But uh, so yeah, we got a lot of we got a fun show tonight. Tonight we are discussing the 50th anniversary of Star Trek and uh, a sort of a mini review of the new Star Trek film, Star Trek Beyond. So uh, which Brian uh, got a chance to go out and see, and I think Kat, didn't you get a chance to see it as well? I did. All right, so we'll get we'll be able to do a quick mini review on that. Uh, but of course, there is procedure to follow, so we are going to begin with our new segment, Random Topic of the Week. And last week, we talked about nerdy superstitions, so we got a couple of really good ones here. Uh, first one here comes from Mark, and he writes, A friend in our gaming group passed away several years ago, and in tribute, we've always kept his chair empty and sat at the table with the rest of us. And we say that whenever we have a particularly, run, a particularly good run of roles, that he is with us and helping us. So you know that's, that's nice, quite nice. That's a nice little touching little super uh, touching little uh, touching little tribute. So uh, you know, very sorry about your loss, Mark. And uh, you know, here's hoping that uh, your buddy is uh, with you for uh, you know more adventures to come. Uh, let's see another uh, good one here. I have another. Excuse me. Here, okay, I have one here from Rachel. 
and she writes, I have a member of my gaming group who, whenever he has a bad, whenever a dice does him poorly, he takes it out back and buries it and considers it dead. He also refuses to buy any two dice of the same color, which makes it really awkward when he has to buy a large number of dice. Most shops will sell dice individually. Hmm. Dude, there's a, there's a store by me that I no shit. It sells nothing but di- but dice. Doesn't sell games manuals. Doesn't sell you know expansions. It just sells dice, and it's been there for like six years. You can never have that many dice. <laughs> you can never have too many dice. Especially if you're playing uh, high level White Wolf. Buckets <laughs> of d10s. <laughs> Do I win? <laughs> no, you botched. Fuck. The ones that really weird me out are, like, the dice within dice. Have you ever seen these? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen those. Like, like those those can't be game legal, can they? Oh, yeah, they can. Like, those just those just blow my mind. And then you got the people who buy, like, the, the, the gold-plated dice. I The weirdest set of dice I've got are my glyph dice, which are, like, cylindrical. Um, with, uh, I, really, they're really hard to describe. They're, they're, like, vaguely cylindrical with, and they're, like, polygon shaped um, so they've got flat edges around the edge of the cylinder so they, they like will will roll on a certain number but they look, they look really almost odd. like a rupee from Legend of Zelda yeah a little bit okay yeah I know the ones you're talking about yeah, like no, like I get those, but like, like some of the ones, like you see the ones that are like, you know, they're they're gold plated or uh, what's what, what's I, I think you shared a link with me on these a, a couple of years ago, like dice car from a uh, stone from a meteorite. Oh and yeah, they were like six hundred bucks for a pair. Mm-hmm. Like that just seems excess, like horribly excessive to me. But then again, I'm paying seven hundred bucks for a replica of Anakin's lightsaber from Episode Four, built out of an actual Graflex camera casing. So who am I to throw stones? Uh, at one of the student role-playing national competitions that was held in Sheffield, the top prize was a, a full set, as in, you know, um, D4 to uh, D20, uh, all the different dice, in Sheffield stainless steel. Oh, wow. Okay, a little um, piece du- of home. Yeah, double si- uh, double-sized as well, so they were really big and heavy. So, like, if you threw these at somebody, you meant them grievous bodily harm? Indeed. <laughs> they were really cool looking, though. <laughs> okay. All right. So, uh, yeah, that was last week's topic. This week, uh, since we've, we're, we're going to put a final cap on our, on, our, on our Pokemon discussion here, we've all been playing the game for a while, and I'm sure that we've got some, some good stories. So this week's random topic is funny Pokemon Go stories, and I've got a really good one to open up with. Uh, I posted a, a few days ago that I had caught a Snorlax that I was especially proud of, and I caught this guy. Um, I don't. I don't normally because of my work schedule. I don't get a chance to really go out on safari. So most of the time, when I'm out hunting Pokemon, I'm either doing it on the road on my way to or from work, or when I'm working my second job doing deliveries for Domino's. So on my way home from work uh, last week, uh, I think it was I think it was Wednesday night. Uh, I had my phone in my hand and my steering wheel on the other. Uh, yeah, I know it's illegal in Maryland, but hey, traffic laws be damned. You got to catch them all. Uh, that and is, wait, hold I'm, on. That is some absolute horrid advice. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> we do not yeah, condone yeah, driving no. and playing Pokemon Go, that nerd of their power. <laughs> Please understand that. 
do 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 as I say, not as I do. No, but, don't do that either, because you're just telling them to do it. I didn't. Um, say, no, I didn't tell them to do it. I just said that's what I do. You said, you said driving laws be damned. No, don't damn the driving laws. They're there for a reason. <laughs> so anyway, so I'm driving home down Dorsey Road, which is this this quiet little stretch of road, and uh, my phone chirps. I look down, and it's a Snorlax. At 853 combat power. Again, traffic laws be damned. I'm taking a swing at this guy. So I'm, I'm, I'm flitting back and forth between the phone and the road, and I'm flinging Pokeballs. And I finally catch him. And right as, I, as my phone registers the catch, I drive past this, this overgrown bushery on the side of the road that you can't see shit until you're, like, right on it. And cops love to camp out there. So, of course, you know, once I catch him, I pass him, of course there's a cop there. And I pass him, and I hear the whoop, whoop, and I was like, oh, shit, you know. So I pull over, I get out my, my license and registration, because I've done this dance before, uh, not for using my cell phone on the road, you know. I've been pulled over for other things, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Cop comes up, and this guy, he looks like the, the, like the, the like he stepped out of Smoking the Bandit. He's got the wide-brimmed hat, the sunglasses, he's chewing on a... Chewing on a toothpick, you know the kind of cop that you look at. Like, I'm going to make you. I'm going to put your yuppie ass in the pokey, and they're going to pass you around like a blunt. You know. So he comes up and he asks my license and registration. I hand it to him. And he's like, "Reason why I pulled you over was because I, I saw you on your cell phone while you're driving." And I was like, "You know, this guy's got me dead to rights. I'm not even going to argue." And I was like, "Yeah, yes, sir. I was. I'm. I'm sorry. I know it's. I know it's against the law." He says, "Are you one of the? Are you playing that uh, Pokemon Go thing?" I was like, yes, yes, sir, I am. And he said, were you trying to catch that Snorlax a few <laughs> minutes ago? Fuck off. Uh, as, you know, funnily enough, officer, yes, yes, I was. He stands there, chews on his toothpick for a couple seconds. And he says, I'll tell you what, if you can show me you caught it, I'll let you off with a warning. Oh, my God. You can believe I whipped out that phone like I had the only lighter in a crack house. <laughs> And he said, I've, I, I've, I've wasted about 20 Pokeballs before he finally ran off on me. So, you know, oh off God. you go. <laughs> Just wow. to show you that people of all kinds are playing this game. <laughs> so what about you guys? Have you guys have any, uh, had any uh, funny stories with uh, Pokemon Go? I just, everyone goes back to the episode about my Pikachu one, because that's been the funniest thing that's really happened to me. Everything else has been very mundane. I don't. Now, if you told that story on the show, I don't think I don't think you did, I, or you, you didn't. We didn't. had a whole episode about Pokemon Go. Yeah, I told I told the story on the Pokemon Go episode. Oh, because I oh, because I thought that happened after we recorded that. Uh, no, you need to pay attention to the shows I upload. <laughs> okay, uh, Skyblaze. What about you? Any particularly fu- funny stories? Uh, I was amused when I'd gone down to um, there's a, a shop. I don't know if you have them in America. It's called Hobbycraft. Where they sell things like um, fabric and paints and, you know, everything to make crafting supplies. And it's huge. Uh, And the only one we've got in Sheffield is a few miles away in a retail park. So I had to take the the tram um, to go down the Don Valley. Now, historically, it isn't anymore, but back in ye olden days uh, the Don Valley used to be where all of the Sheffield heavy industry was um, the coal uh, the coal coking plants uh, the steel mills, the rolling mills all that sort of business, all down there 
So back uh, in like the 50s, 60s and 70s, that entire area would have been covered in smoke. And you can still see the remnants of it on a lot of the older buildings, you know, because they're black. Um, especially anything that's made out of sandstone, it's absolutely black. Um, so, it, it got, and, but a lot of it's been like uh, a lot of the, the coking plants and steel mills are gone now, and there happens to be a real tail park down there. So I went down there, pick up some stuff, and on my way back, I was waiting for the tram and um, looking at my phone, and it buzzed. Uh, okay, what's that? Oh, and it's a coughing. In the heaviest, uh, the former heaviest, re uh, uh, heaviest <laughs> industrial area in Sheffield, where all the pollution would be, it's a fucking coughing. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding? I'm, su I'm surprised you didn't see a grimer or a muck as well. Well, it gets better because uh, a few days after that, um, when I was w um, when I started working on my my Raspberry Pi pot project, and I needed a uh, an SD card. So when okay, it's a fairly nice day. I'll just walk down to Maplin's, the electronics store around the corner. So I think, well, I'm well, I'm doing this. I might as well take my phone, and get some Pokemon. Uh, we don't tend to get a lot around here, apart from you know Pidgeys and uh, all the one and all the Zubats and a billion water Pokemon because I live on the top of three rivers in this area of Sheffield. Um, but. I got to Maplin, and just as I was about to turn my phone off so I could go inside and get the SD card, phone buzzes, and right outside the fucking door is an Electabuzz. <laughs> oh. I was like, what? Did you get them? I did, yeah. Oh, I'm so jealous. When, 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 they, impo when, when they institute trading, I'm going to have to like offer you my firstborn for it. I've got a Porygon as well. I got that from uh, Hillsborough Park. I was quite pleased. Uh, I have two Electra buzzes. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, those those are those are my two stories. The, the weirdly appropriate locations for catching Pokemon. All right, Kat, what about you? You got a funny story to share? I don't know if my story is funny, but just since we uh, since we had done the Pokemon Go episode in between. Then and now, um, I was on TV because of Pokemon. My friends and I were doing our now usual routine of going down to Main Street to go catch Pokemon and to collect a bunch of resources because we're all out of Pokeballs. And we had just gotten out of the car, hit the sidewalk, um, and some guy comes up to us and was like, hey, I'm from, you know, insert local news station here. Are you guys playing Pokemon Go? And we're like, yeah. And it's like me and four other people. So obviously we're all looking at our phones going, you know, yeah, we're playing Pokemon. Anybody can tell. And he starts to ask us if we had heard about some uh, some news story that had, you know, just been like breaking news. And it was the story of, oh, I don't know, the authorities lured some pedophile uh, who thought he was meeting up with a 14-year-old girl something something pokemon go like they lured out some pedophile via pokemon go and so the this guy wanted to know if we had seen this news and we were like no and then we were like this is bad this guy is trying to talk shit about pokemon go he's trying to get a a reaction out of us that we're gonna shit all over it and we like steered the conversation to all the good stuff about pokemon go and we talked about how we played in this particular place because we felt really safe playing here 
there was always a lot of other people. We were making a lot of connections and having a really good time. And we tried to, like, be very, very positive about it. Um, if you don't have and, a YouTube link where I can go and watch this, then we are no longer friends. Um, I have – one of my friends recorded it on his phone, so it's not super high quality. But it, I do have a copy of the uh, the whole story. Okay, because that, that's got to go up on the Facebook like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> that that needs so to happen. It, like, of all people to get interviewed, like, they're – this particular place gets between like 50 to 200 people playing every single night. And he just so happened to stop the five of us and talk to us for like five, 10 minutes, however long he talked to us. There had been two segments of Pokemon that on that night's news, they had talked about the story twice. There was like the eight o'clock news and the 11 o'clock news or whatever. And we were on the 11 o'clock news and they interviewed other people earlier that day, but I don't care about them because I was on TV. Although your your eyebrows seem to have different ideas from the rest of your face. Oh my god. So, like, my friend was uh, taking screen caps or pictures or whatever, and, like, he kept taking pictures of when I was in the middle of sentences, and it was really bright outside, and I didn't have my sunglasses on, so I'm squinting a lot, and um, because I was in the middle of talking, like, I'm having facial expressions that make sense for the, the conversation that is going on. But um, when you just look at them, my eyebrows look like they are going insane. <laughs> I am, I'm like Peter Capaldi. I get him. I get him on an eyebrow level. Attack eyebrows. Uh, okay, but yeah, so those are, those are our uh, funny Pokemon Go stories. So we want to hear yours. Has, has there been a, a funny mishap or amusing anecdote that has occurred while you've been out hunting Pokemon. So, uh, yeah, sound off in the comments, or you can send them to us through the email at drgonzo at nerdofthethirdpower.com. And uh, ordinarily, at this point, this is where we would do Ask a Geek, but we've got a lot of show to do today, so we're going to forego Ask a Geek tonight. Tyler, I, I, I don't worry. I've got your, your questions. You'll be the first up on the block next week, I promise. So, but we've got a big discussion topic to to get through to do tonight, and that is the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, uh, Gene Roddenberry's uh, legendary sci-fi masterpiece that has pretty much been the er example of uber fandom, uh, as as far as I can recall, and uh, it's it's changed so many lives and brought together so many people and it's been it's it's changed so radically over the last 50 years that we thought it'd be a, a take be, now would be a good time to go back and take a look at this legendary franchise and see what makes it tick and why it is still such a driving force in geek culture even today and we're fortunate enough to have uh two major uh Star Trek nerds on the show with us uh Skyblaze and Cat you're both uh Trekkies from uh from from way back aren't you Oh yes, yes. Okay, sorry. So, uh, I can sc- elaborate if you need me to. <laughs> no, I, no, figured, I figured we'd actually elaborate, you know, actually in the in the discussion section. But <laughs> okay, so so Skyblaze, let's let's start with you. Give us a, a a a bit of a history on how Star Trek came to be, and sort of the 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 initial splash that it made when it first appeared on the scene. To be honest, it didn't really make that much of a splash when it first appeared. Um, the the genesis of it really was a uh, hair <laughs> genesis of it. Um, I made <laughs> I made a funny. Um, was where, where, basically where, wherever he is, John is going puns are my job. Um, it was an advertent, I promise. Uh, 
Uh, I'm not sure if that makes it better or worse. Anyway, uh, was basically uh, Gene Roddenberry had a knew some people, had a, a rep as a, a script doctor and a writer. Um, um, was like, I've got this idea for this this show called Star Trek. Um, and a lot of the 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 way that they actually got it made was they just went, look, it's a western in space. Um, and that's how they got the studio to approve it. And uh, Lucille Ball was actually, because it was made at Desilu Studios, which was her studio, um, and she was actually one of the people really pushing for it. It was like, I think this is a really good thing, you know, partially because they actually had uh, people like Hura and uh, Yemen Rand and uh, Christine Chappell who were involved in the cast and actually had stuff to do other than hang on a man's arm, which was not a thing that happened in American TV during the 60s, as far as I can tell. Um, so that got it made. Uh, apparently the studios were very unconvinced by both Ahura and um, Mr. Spock. And then all of Mr. Spock's fan mail came in in truckloads and they were like, okay, mm -hmm. turns out we were wrong. Um, I'm not going to go into a lot of the controversy about that and, you know, the fact that a lot of Nichelle Nichols' fan mail was kept from her. They were really, she was really quite badly treated for a lot of the run by the studio. Well, there, 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 there is one story concerning Nichelle Nichols that I do want to touch upon, and that was that uh, at, at the, the, the anecdote that I heard that at one point uh, she was ready to quit the series, and uh, no less than Martin Luther King Jr. himself uh, called her up and said, no, you, you need to stay on this show because, you're, you're, because what you're doing is really groundbreaking here for African Americans everywhere. I, I wish you hadn't started to tell this story because I know the story a little bit in more detail than that. And I was going to tell the story um, because he didn't call her up. She was at a party and somebody was like, here, I need you to meet your biggest fan. And she thinks it's going to be some kid. And it's Martin Luther King Jr. And she freaks out because she was all ready to quit the show and go back to the stage. And she didn't think it was that big of a deal. Like, this was her, like, Star Trek was her in-between job where she was just trying to get her name out there. And she wasn't really super committed to it. And then she got told what was what. And uh, just, wow, what a difference it would have made. But what a difference it did make for people. Mm. Well, Whoopi Goldberg is on record as saying, you know, she, it was it was seeing Uhura that led her into acting. You know, representation absolutely. is pretty important. And and the thing is, like, you know, we 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 talk about how how groundbreaking a series it was, but you know, sometimes I think we kind of gloss over sort of the the outer context of what was happening tonight, and some things that maybe because we're so used to it nowadays, we don't even stop to think about. Like, everybody knows about, you know, Uhura was important to African to African American viewers, and, and George Takei was important to, you know, a to Asian viewers. But, you know, at the t 1960s, Cold War is still in full swing, and here we have Chekhov, a Russian, you know, operating on the, on the bridge of the starship, and it's it's treated as like no major big deal. It you know, wasn't. So a friend of mine pointed this out. It's like it wasn't just that he was Russian and existed. He made jokes about being Russian. 
you know, oh, we Russians invented this, we are clearly superior, and everyone laughs about it. As, as a kind of, just to prove, you know, all of this, these nationalistic tensions are so far in the past now that it's just a good laugh. Yeah, and it's like, like, they're, 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 like, almost every cast member on the show did something groundbreaking in some, you know, some in large ways, some in really small ways, but a lot of the, the, Im, the, the social impact of the original Star Trek series is stuff that you wouldn't really stop to consider unless you really knew the, the, the sociopolitical landscape at the time. Um, there's, a, there's a history teacher that I, uh, I didn't take any of his classes in college, but he teaches at the community college, and when he starts talking about McCarthyism, he brings out the one episode where uh, Kirk was on trial for... for I, I can't remember what, what exactly... Something about he initiated a self-destruct or a red alert at the wrong time, and it wound up getting a crew member killed, and he was getting framed. And he held that up as sort of a mirror on McCarthyism, which was in in swing at the time. You know, so like I said, there's a lot of context that we nowadays either don't don't know or just don't think about because it's 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 so far in our past. But it's really hard to understate just how apart from the rest of the pack, Star Trek was for its day. And it wasn't just putting people of color on screen. It wasn't as simple as that. It was giving them things to do um, and creating characters that weren't stereotypes. So having um, a, a, a black woman on the screen who wasn't somebody's slave or wasn't somebody's mammy or whatever other stereotype was still existing on TV at the time. She was in charge like she was a woman of power in her position was high on the show basically um so to have all these people of color uh working together um and building a an more ideal universe um but also that they were all entrusted and very respect they all highly respected one another it it's not just about putting color on screen it's about putting good representations of people on screen um, and I think that was just its such a brilliant move. It, it was just something that the era needed, and thank God for it. It was, all, it was also the, the, the positivity of it, the idea that you know, humanity doesn't wreck itself and manages to get into space and talk to other, other, other creatures and other beings who think differently to us, and we don't blow them up. We make friends with them. And it, and it was it was it was sort of that that premise that you know led to I, I, at least I think it led to the other thing that made Star Trek such a, 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 gave it sort of a, its its initial going power was it attracted some really heavy hitters in the sci in the sci fi writing back in the day like Harlan Ellison. Mm. Uh, did a couple of scripts. I know that at one point Isaac Asimov almost got tapped to write a script. He was and a big fan. He was. A, you, do you know the story about like the first, the pre-screening of uh, the Menagerie? Was that uh, was that the story where uh, he was at a convention? They were playing his pilot, and Roddenberry was like, "Will you shut up? They're playing my pilot." And someone was like, "Congratulations! You just pissed off. You just insulted Isaac Asimov." Yep. Yeah, I was like, oh god, I am going to be torn to shreds. And then Isaac Asimov was like, I am, re- I am so sorry. Uh, that was brilliant. Um, can I buy you a drink? And it's like, 
Ah! <laughs> I became like the, the series' biggest champion. Like fucking and, what? And another thing that that another challenge that Star Trek had to overcome was the networks just did not like it. And they tried to like if they, like we talk about how Firefly is a, is a cursed series, you know. Meanwhile, old school Star Trek is over here going, "Oh, you're so adorable." Like all the 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 crap that the networks ran Roddenberry through. There's a there's a um a story that he it was not so much a story it's sort of a, a routine that he did at this one convention, um which if you bought a certain cut of the soundtrack to the first Star Trek motion picture you got this uh, this story in a second disc where he talks about like the kind of things that the censors would run him would make the kind of hoops that would make him jump through and he said the only way I can really illustrate it is to write out a, a the kind of report that they would send me for something that you wouldn't think would be a big deal so he writes out a censor's notes on doing a teleplay based on the bible and it's things like you know sons and daughters of noah cannot be seen as repopulating the earth as it could imply incestuous relationships. Recommend a fleet of arcs instead of just the one, or perhaps strong swimmers from other families can be saved. And just stuff that it's just so ridiculous and off the wall that you wouldn't even think would have been a problem. You almost feel like they somebody in 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 the higher ups had, were, was just gunning for Roddenberry. The number of hoops they made him jump through, and that he was able to push through that and put this out is you know really amazing. And yet, even with that, it wasn't until reruns that Star Trek first started getting popular, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, uh, it was only in the seventies when it was it was students who made it such a huge deal uh, because it was it was rerun um, like during the day or in the in the afternoon when students have just finished classes or they don't have classes in the afternoon. And they'd be like, I am so bored, flick, 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 flick. Ooh, what's this? Uh, all of a sudden, all over America, there are... Whichever student has the biggest TV is inviting all of his friends over to watch this new show. And let's, let's go to Johnny's room. He's got an 8-inch! <laughs> Whatever works. There's too many Some people jokes. probably took that way out of context. Yep. Well, hello too there. Too many <laughs> jokes. Anyway... Uh, yeah, go over there, watch the show, and you know some of the earliest fan gatherings were on student camp on on university campuses. But the first official convention, which I think was in New York, was organised by um, a group of female fans. It was it had been strongly rumoured that the network were going to drop it. Even this is like before it went into syndication, and the fandom was still. Large enough and bonkers enough and organized enough, and Gene Roddenberry had absolutely nothing to do with this whatsoever, no sir, uh, that they got enough people together to write into the studio and say, We want Star Trek back. That through sheer weight of numbers, the studio capitulated and went, Yeah, fine. Um, that was led by one Bijou Trimble um, and totally not Gene Roddenberry honest guy and it worked but then the studio slashed the budget in half so a lot of people complain about the the drop in quality between seasons 2 and 3 part of it was because the budget had been absolutely decimated 
and it had been decimated so badly that a lot of the the really good writers from season one and two they couldn't afford to bring them back so they were working with like bargain basement stuff which was insanity and it's why you get like some of the garbage that we got in season three things like spock's brain where nobody seemed to know anything about the characters because nobody knew anything about the, the writer didn't know anything about the characters uh, Gene Roddenberry himself had buggered off during this period because he was like, if you're not going to take this seriously, then screw you all. Hmm. Uh, which is why you get that. But still, there's still some good stuff in season three. It's just the quality isn't as high in general as it was in the, in the other two seasons. You've got to dig to find it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yet, you know, this fan base kept growing and growing and it eventually got big enough to where... You know, Hollywood started getting involved and like, oh, you know, maybe maybe there's a film franchise in here. Uh, so that led to uh, ten year, about ten years later, uh, the first Star Trek motion picture, which uh, some say is awesome, uh, others are considerably less kind, like me. The thing about Star Trek the motion picture is there are about three cuts of it. And there's one cut of it, which I think was the original home video, American home video version. Um, which is half decent. The only real problem with it is that the effect shots are overlong. Uh, there are some, I, I haven't seen one in years, but there are some fan cuts kicking around um, where they actually do tighten it up a lot using that as a base. Um, and it works a lot better. It's still quite slow-paced and it's still got it's still a little confused in places, but it makes sense and it is a lot more enjoyable to sit through than the original theatrical cut because the theatrical cut makes no goddamn sense at all. Like, who are they? What's going on? Why are they there? What? I got I got the feeling watching the motion picture that Roddenberry wanted to make 2001, but the studio wanted him to do Star Wars. Pretty much, yeah. But, uh, you know, we got six motion pictures out of the original series. Seven, if you, if you want to count Generations as a, as a TOS uh, film. You know, which I think is the most films that have ever come out of a television property, like, ever. Like, in, in, in many ways, the, the films, out, you know, had, I would say, had almost had more impact than the, uh, than the TV series. Because, like, we were, like, you know, we were still getting original series Star Trek films after the start of Star Trek The Next Generation, like, 20 years later. I actually did see uh, a couple of the Star Trek films before I saw the original series. And so did I. Because of, yeah, because of how, just how young I was at the time. And what was really fascinating to me about the films is that you can almost see sort of the the transition from the more out there stories of uh, the original series to some of the more you know grounded uh, political stories from the next generation. There was still a lot of political and social commentary in the original series, uh, but it's it's got that kind of slightly psychedelic um, air to it that... Well, it was is, the 60s. It, it was the 60s. It, it just has that air to it that means it's a lot more... It feels a lot more fantastic. There's a lot of science fantasy in the original series. 
And as it goes on, it becomes kind of the the, the sci-fi gets steadily harder and harder the further you go through uh, through the decades. So late eighties comes, and Roddenberry decides he wants to get back into Star Trek as a television series, and he dreams up Star Trek: The Next Generation. And it's almost like a lather, rinse, repeat of the original series, except this time everything works, for the most part. Are we going to go into phase two, or are we leaving that for now? Uh, well, I mean, phase fa- phase two never really happened, did it? Well, no, but it's it turned into it, it kind of half turned into uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture and half turned into Next Gen. A lot of concepts from phase two. Uh, things like the original concept for Ilea were turned into Deanna Troy and Decker was turned into Riker there's a lot of parallels if you actually read up on, there's a there's a book that I got several years ago uh, which goes into a lot of detail about the parallels between the original concepts for, for uh, Next Gen and the Phase 2 stuff um, But I don't know if we can really go into it in detail because we've only got 20 minutes and we've still got, like, still got a lot of ground to cover Okay, well, I've I've covered a lot of it. If you're interested, then poke me, and I will give you a dissertation. There we go. Okay, um, but one of the things that I that always struck me about Next Generation was that Roddenberry still kept to his vision of humanity and civilization in general as continuing to grow and to learn. Like in the original series, you wouldn't see, you know, you know, Captain Kirk had no kind words for the Klingons. Like he would never, he would never sit down eye to eye and see eye to eye with with a Klingon over anything except I hate you, you hate me. Good, that's agreed. Let's kill each other. There was a whole movie about that. Exactly, several, in fact. <laughs> but there was also the Day of the Dove in uh, the original series, which where they do team up to beat something else by laughing at it like it's a boggart from uh, Harry <laughs> Potter. Yeah, but that was that was still very teeth clenched. But you start next. Yeah, you start. But ne- it, it mean. The the thing the the point of that was on it, in the right circumstances, if we are required to stand side by side to beat something else, we can do that. We are not so blinded by our own hatred and rage that we're incapable. You're you're you're, you're making my point before I before I can get to it, because um, we open with next generation with Worf, a Klingon, serving with distinction on a Federation starship. And here again, we kind of go back to what we were saying with Chekhov. It's like, you know, it's the, it's, it's the idea that, you know, there's no such thing as, an, as a, what's the word I'm looking for? An enemy in, in certain terms that, you know, we can always move past our differences and, and come together and, and to, to learn and to grow and to help each other. And there, there was, there's a lot of the original series still in the first couple seasons of Next Generation before it, it sort of morphed. And it's really interesting to see it sort of evolve from simply Star Trek II to its own, its own entity. And can I say that uh, I don't think I've ever seen an ensemble cast that was as perfectly put together as Star Trek The Next Generation's. Would you that say that even the... of Will Wheaton? Yeah, well, I, 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 you know. There was nothing wrong with him as an actor in and of himself. When they actually gave him good material, I mean, things like The First Duty, he does it, he pulls it off. Uh, but he was given garbage. Yeah, he was expected to be, he was expected to be 
you know, this annoying, obnoxious little genius and who everybody is supposed to love and admire, but in fact everybody just found incredibly obnoxious. And so all the audience found him obnoxious as well. But otherwise, I mean, inspired casting. Um, like, you know, now, you know, we nowadays, we think, you know, we think Patrick Stewart, you know, we think, oh, you know, Captain Picard. But before, before he actually took the role, if you suggest, oh, Patrick Stewart doing a sci-fi television series, oh, what liquor are you taking? Because he was a very, very respected Shakespearean play actor before he took up Captain Picard. They also wanted to give him a wig. Yeah, that was hilarious. <laughs> and, the, uh, and he was told by his agent, yeah, you'll be doing this for like a year, maybe two. It'll be, it'll be a good pit stop for you, get a steady wage, you know, buy a house, and then you can go back to the stage if you want. <laughs> really? But he's immortal, so he could honestly do it forever. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm convinced that he has the Philosopher's Stone. Like, I'm just convinced. Well, you see that picture of him with all the other captains, and it's like, have you aged? If anything, he's gotten younger. <laughs> the, well, the Scott Bakula's almost as bad, because you look at him now and him back in the last season of Quantum Leap, it's very difficult to tell the fecking difference. <laughs> like, hmm, well, are tra- you sharing the elixir of life? Just traveling what from body to body, you know, just takes years off your, uh, off your life. Lol. <laughs> Wow, with, with full, with this conversation's full of Full Metal Alchemist references. <laughs> but mostly Quantum Leap. <laughs> but um, but yeah, and and we also started seeing um, you know. But now the question that I have is. So, but we had you know we had Star Trek: The Next Generation. And it was such a huge success that we got two spin-offs out of it. One of which is generally very well received, and the other, eh, there's some arguments about. Uh, so now I want to put the question to you. Deep Space Nine and Voyager, your, your thoughts on each. Deep Space Nine took a while to get going. It was, the first couple of seasons was such a slog. Um, it all livened up once Worf arrived, and he was like, Hello, I have brought all of the interesting with me. Uh, tell me it's not true, come on. <laughs> no, he, do- he does kind of show up and is like, Okay, you know, like, I, like, the best way I heard it described uh, was uh, the moment where we, at the, in that episode where he first steps onto the station and the camera pans up to him. He says, okay, at this precise moment, a FedEx man is arriving at the studio going, yes, I have this uh, shipment of awesome. Can you sign for this? <laughs> <laughs> so back it up. Beep, beep, beep. But, um... um but the, the, after that, you know, the Dominion War arc, it becomes... In some places, it becomes quite difficult to watch because some of it is so wrenching and so bleak in places. I mean, it becomes like a proper war movie in places. And it's great telly, but oh fuck, is it hard to sit through more than once? You know, yeah, after, after the, uh, the siege of AR-35, you're kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, I hate Vic Fontaine, but you know, we need some Bing Crosby right now. Um, what I always liked about about Deep Space Nine was going back to what you said about how the original series was a western in space. 
mm. was uh, Deep Space Nine felt almost sort of like, uh, you know, whereas the first was kind of almost like a wagon train in space, this series felt more like, you know, okay, we're at the at Fort Alamo in space. You know, and because of that that static setting, because they weren't go- jumping from planet to planet every week, they were able to focus more on the development of characters and more in-depth story arcs than they were able to do in, say, the original series or Next Generation. And that's what really appealed to me about the series. Uh, I have to point out, because I do live in Texas, the Alamo is not a fort, it was a mission. I'm very sorry. I the will, more you know. I will. I will. I will send you an apolog- an apologetic basket of cheeses and crackers. By, by law, I have to correct anyone that says that. I'm sorry. Or you'll be visited by a cowboy. <laughs> be visited by a cowboy. <laughs> it's twoo. It's all twoo. Okay. But uh, Brian and Cat, uh, what, what, what are your what were your thoughts on the next gen spinoffs? Um, for me, I didn't watch a whole lot of Deep Space Nine while it was running. I caught a lot of it in reruns. I don't know how this happened. Um, I caught all of Voyager, though. Um, I don't know that I had a particular love of Voyager, except in retrospect. What it was was that my dad was tape recording the episodes as they aired for a co-worker who, for some reason, couldn't watch it himself. <laughs> So I watched all of the episodes just because my dad was recording it. Um, And so, of course, that was the one that I ended up liking the most um, was Voyager. Because first off, female captain was a big deal. Um, Whether or not you like her, irrelevant. I don't care whether or not you like Janeway. Uh, it, It goes back to representation. Having a female captain who's kind of a hard ass and... Um, sits there and makes mean faces of people. It was kind of awesome. Hmm. Um, I loved Janeway. Um, and and it was really cool. To, I, everybody loves Seven of Nine for one reason, um, which was the costume. And uh, I liked Seven of Nine because she was kind of like a cool story to have in there. Sort of like Worf was the, the outsider, the Klingon, the bad guy who became a good guy um, kind of trope. Um, Seven of Nine sort of served that function of somebody who's relearning to be human and somebody who's traditionally an enemy who is now an ally. I really liked a lot of that. Not all of it, but a lot of that. So I actually really enjoyed Voyager. I know most people probably didn't, but I know I did. I I enjoyed most of it. There, I do have to admit, though, that the, the, the general level of the script writing really went downhill in the later seasons. <sighs> I, again, this is something that I know quite a bit about because a a friend of mine was involved in doing some script doctoring, some non-credited script doctoring, actually, for some of the mid-seasons of Voyager. So I know quite a lot about what was going on in the writing room at that period, and it wasn't good. Uh, There was no real leadership. Um, There was a lot of toing and froing about directions of characters. Nothing had really been nailed down. Uh, some of the actors were very unhappy about the way that the character was characters have been treated. Um, Robert Beltran Robert Bel- in particular. Robert Beltran and um, I've forgotten his name. The guy that plays Harry Kim. Garrett Wang. Garrett Wang. Uh, he was pretty unhappy as well. Um, there, there, there were a lot of problems in the writing room about direction, and because they. Very early on, there was a kind of, do we want to make another Deep Space Nine? Do we want to make another Next Gen? They were very heavily pressured by the studio to make another Next Gen. 
um, they really wanted to do another Deep Space Nine because it was much more interesting to write. So you ended up with this kind of like torn down the middle thing where it's like, we want to write character arcs, we're not allowed to because we have to have the studio mandated reset button, which caused a lot of friction, a lot of problems, and you can really tell. There are some superb episodes, things like Message in a Bottle is absolutely brilliant and hilarious. But, I mean, anything involved, most things involving the EMH are brilliant. Um, but there's also some absolutely appalling episodes. It was a very uneven show, is what we're trying to say. It, it really was, it's, yeah. It's really interesting to because, and, and another thing to point out, these two shows ran side by side, so it's really interesting mm. to hold them up against each other and see how something that works in one series did not work or would not work in in the other series and vice versa. So it's really interesting to kind of juxtapose these two. Because they had what completely is different tones. They were totally oh, yeah. different shows. What is interesting is that Deep Space Nine actually holds... A friend of mine brought this up at a party I was at the, the other day. Deep Space Nine tends to hold a better... Uh, when you treat it like... Um, like DVD box sets or a Netflix show, if you sit and binge it, it's very difficult to binge watch Voyager because of how uneven the tone is and the fact that there aren't any story arcs to, to kind of keep you in. Uh, whereas Deep Space Nine is very, very easy to binge, so it's kind of almost ahead of its time in that in that particular aspect. Yeah, that was how I actually discovered Deep Space Nine was on Netflix, and you know, my it was my you know, growing up, it was my father's favorite Star Trek series, and I kind of poo pooed him for it because I was like, oh, you know, it's in the same place every single week. That just sounds boring. And then I discovered it, and I got two seasons in. And I called up, and I was like, okay, yeah, everything I said to you about making fun of you for liking Deep Space Nine, I take it all back. You so. gotta stop judging over there because this happens a lot <laughs> with you. Well, you look, growing, you know, it, 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 it was my dad. You know, anything your parents like, you know, is supposed to be automatically uncool when you're a teenager. So, you know, I never experienced this, but then my parents are awesome. <laughs> well, grow grow up with a math teacher father, and then come back to me. I I had an engineer father. So, yeah. eh. so and then came uh, the last Star Trek series. Oh, God. Which I will I, I will admit it had its many flaws, but its first and third seasons I will fight to the death to defend, and that was Star Trek Enterprise, which wound the clock back pretty, even, even before the original series, and even from the start it was a, a, a very divisive series because of how radically different it was to everything that came before it. Like, uh, you know, we talk again about uh, how the original series was a Western in space and DS9 was, you know, remember the Alamo in space. Star Trek Enterprise was very much a military drama, I felt. At least in the, especially in the third season when they did the Zindi story arc. If they'd they'd actually kept to that tone, it would have been fine. But again, they were trying to... They were trying to do um, the original series with next-gen sensibilities, and it already felt dated because they'd done it that way. A lot of, if you watch um, a lot of a lot of early, the first two seasons of Enterprise now, it feels dated, which is really weird. Well, um, I, I think part of that was because. You know, the original series and the next generation, they did political comment, social commentary issues, but it was all done very subtly to where mm. you could apply it to just about any point in time. 
Whereas Enterprise, that subtlety was gone. Like you look at yeah. the episode where uh, they're take the Enterprise is hijacked by cultists uh, who worship the Sphere Makers, and Archer asks, "Well, what's the difference between your belief and theirs?" It's like, oh, you know, you know, we believe that the Sphere Makers created the universe in six days, and they believe that it took seven. You know, and it's like, you know, th- that whole episode just screams 9-11, War on Terror, Bush yeah. administration. You can't really, you know, apply that. You know, y- y- you can't look at that without knowing exactly where it came from and where it fits into the social, po- the social political consciousness of the time. You know, it's... I, I, again, the only way that I could really describe it is it was the writers beating us with a like beating us with a fish made from their politics. Just, just to kind of finish off with, I'm not I'm not going to go into too much detail about Enterprise because we're running out of time very quickly. But the last episode of Enterprise was such an insult. It was an insult to the cast. It was an insult to the fans. It was an insult to the franchise as a whole. Yeah, let's take a ne- episode of The Next Generation, not even a particularly good episode, a kind of middle-of-the-road episode, and make it so that Enterprise as a whole is just a a side story in The Next Gen. Fuck off. I mean, I, I watched that at the... It was actually the closing party for the Star Trek Society at the University of Sheffield. We were we were shutting the society down, and that was kind of our the end party. And that had just been broadcast, and we went, let's put it on. And when we got to that bit where it was like Riker shows up and the hol- shuts down the holodeck, we were throwing things at the screen. Yeah, I would, I, I, I'm surprised you guys didn't do a do-over on that party. Like, you know, let's, let's watch all good things instead. Let's do this tomorrow, but instead let's watch all good things. I think, I think we ended up putting uh, First Contact on after that. We were like, let's watch something good, Star Trek. Yeah, okay, what do we have to immediately to hand? First Contact? That'll do. <sighs> okay. So and uh, of course we're not we're not really going to talk about uh, the 2009 Star Trek film or Into Darkness because we've already covered those. But uh, let's talk briefly about Star Trek Beyond, which just came out this last weekend, and which Brian and Kat you both went to see. Okay, so you know Star Trek Beyond, uh, what's reportedly going to be the final film in the Abrams verse. And uh, I gotta say before we get in, into this, this was not a film that I thought was going to be good in any way based on the trailers, and yet I'm hearing a lot of good things from the people who've seen it, which is just you two guys. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I guess my first question is, is is this a case of just it was a bad trailer? Uh, yes, uh, but uh, before we go any further, final film in the Abrams verse. They've already talked about the next movie. Ah, oh, crap. Ha <laughs> ha! Um, They've already talked about how Chris Hemsworth is probably going to be in it. So, Which, Ooh, as, as Papa Kirk? Yes, I but... I can't imagine any other character. Yeah, of course, but he also um, died but... in the first film, so we're like, ha ha, huh? <laughs> like, yeah, Chris, oh, he was already, oh, wait, what? Yeah. I'm, 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 really hope, I'm really hoping that this is a prequel. Because if they bring, if they bring, if they, I'm going to say, if they wind up bringing back... Papa Kirk in a, in a fourth film that takes place after all the first three, it pretty much removes all 
of uh, James Kirk's uh, motivation from the last three films. I was like, okay, uh, he's upset because his dad dies. Okay, his dad's still alive, so now he's just... I'm, I, I always thought it was going more along the lines of he may be coming back as, like, you know, flashback sequences or something like that, or video, uh, like, video things that he that Kirk has to watch. I, mean, I don't know. It's probably not going to come out for another two yeah, years. Yeah, that's... Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway. That's kind of what I was thinking. Well, anyway, Star Trek Beyond. General, brief general thoughts. Surprisingly good, especially because, as you said, like, the trailers did not make it look good at all. Um, so going in with fairly low expectations, coming out extremely happy. Very much so. A lot of the, I, I think be, it almost played out because I think some of the later... Uh, like TV spots and trailers, in fact, spoil a lot of the film, a lot of like, the really good stuff. And since I wasn't really overall impressed with the first trailer, I didn't pay attention to that. So when I saw the film, I was like, oh, 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 you know, like I had sort of those reactions to it. Like this is this is kind of neat and fun. I like where this. It, it feels like a, you know, it, like I said it feels more right than Into Darkness was. It felt more Star Trekky. They still kept a lot of the action because I guess the studio really wants to make a Star Trek action film. Uh, but this one I liked better because it had what I liked about a lot of Star Trek stuff is that they had to solve a problem in kind of a ridiculous way. Like, that's what I really <laughs> like about Star Trek is like, we have this really weird situation. Hey, really smart people in the room, can we fix this? Here's some really weird stuff that we can do. They're like, let's do it! Like, that was, that's always my favorite part of Star Trek. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> well, what I really enjoyed about the film is that uh, for the first time since they uh, rebooted the franchise film-wise, it felt like more characters got to shine. It's always been a Kirk and Spock show with a bit of Scotty and maybe a bit of Sulu and everyone else is just there for decoration. Um, Oh yeah, and some Uhura drama that I just trained right out of my brain. But this one really... A lot more characters got a lot more screen time and then more lines, and it was actually really nice. So, uh, what was sort of just a, a general plot synopsis of the film? The plot synopsis is that um, it starts off with uh, Kirk is feeling pretty bummed out. Uh, he's really thinking about quitting his job. Um, he just feels like he's not accomplishing anything. What, again? Uh, yes. <laughs> this, this makes, what, the sixth time he's quit or thought about it? <laughs> um, Four of he, which were in the last film? <laughs> actually, technically, he's thinking about taking a promotion and then moving to a different division, basically, and not being the captain of the Enterprise anymore. But anyway, um, they, the whatever, he's at this, um, this brand new, shiny new space station, and uh, they get a distress call in the nebula and the only ship that can actually successfully navigate the nebula is the enterprise. So the enterprise crew is like, okay, we're totally going to do this, even though we'll have no communication systems while we're in there. So they go and answer this distress call. Um, and (laughs) lo and behold, it's a trap. The uh, enterprise is totally destroyed and they're stranded on the planet. Uh, and they're trying to unravel the mystery of, who has attacked them, why have they been attacked, what is that person's motivation, and then lots of big, flashy action, and they have to save the day. Using probably one of the dumbest things I have ever seen in my life that I can't help but love. 
It's so great and dumb, but great, but dumb. <laughs> That's what I was saying. Like, there's a. I, I don't want to spoil. I'll spoil. I don't want to spoil it too much, but it's, it's sort of a callback to the first film. Where they sort of, like I said, they have to solve a problem. They figure out how to take out the guys like enemy ships in such a dumb way using a very, very specific song that I really enjoy. And it was actually, and they, it's not another Beastie Boys song, is it? It's the same Beastie Boys song. <laughs> it's one of my favorite songs. Sorry, Gonzo, but music is magic. But it's oh. it's just this one, like they 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 did a really good job of foreshadowing it. And then, like, when the movie was talking about it and they're like, how to do it, I sat in my seat going, no, they're not, no, you're not going to do it. And then you, they flip it on and you hear the first, like, guitar beats of the song. I'm like, they're going to do it. Oh, man. <laughs> it's, it, it actually, the, the movie compared to the um, previous movie felt quite campy, which was something that I think the movie's, They've taken themselves, they've had funny moments, but they've taken themselves pretty seriously, especially um, Into Darkness with Khan and that being a rather dark story. Um, whereas oh, this you one, mean 9-11 in space? Yeah. This one, however, was, was way more upbeat. It had a lot more energy. There was a lot more camp to it. So the camp sort of felt good. Like, it was hokey, but you loved it because it was hokey and it was Star Trek. And um, and I have a very specific space-to-land ratio that has to be fulfilled in any Star Wars or Star Trek film. Because if you do too much of one, then you're not getting enough of the other. Um, for The film has to have enough time and space that you don't, you know, like that you don't think it shouldn't be called star anything, but it has to have some time on land to sort of vary the, the scenes. And this had a really good balance of space battle and land battle, but it also had a lot of downtime to do all of the philosophical musing character stuff. Where does someone exist in the universe? Cause there's a, there's a one little tribute to Leonard Nimoy. And oh. and it, sort of that's where Spock's arc uh, kind of goes from. Is like, he also feels like he hasn't done enough for his race and things like that. And so he wondered where he sort of maybe exist or not be a part of Starfleet because of that. He should be trying to go out and help Vulcan. And like, but then sort of realizes later on that if he leaves Captain Kirk alone for like five minutes, just shit gets rocked. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So, uh, like I said, we're kind of we're kind of running a little a little over here. So, your your final your final ratings on the film. So, once again, our our gen- our rating scale from best to worst is: see it now, wait for matinee, wait for DVD, wait for rental, wait for cable. Don't even bother. And Brian's rating: fuck this movie. So, what are your what's your final ratings on this film, real quick? Um, see it now. I don't mind those trailers that looked really bad. Um, it's actually a great, clever film. It's a good Star Trek film. Go see it now. I kind of have it at like a matinee area. Like definitely, if you got like uh, some afternoon time to kill, go definitely see it. I think you really enjoy yourself with it. Um, it feels like it's the step in sort of the right direction. Like they something they should have done really at the very beginning of this whole uh, start new Star Trek universe kind of thing reboot slash uh, retcon, whatever you want to call it. So. I like, hopefully, and this is sort of where they're going to go into the future with it. Go beyond. <laughs> I hate myself. 
Also, because it's Justin Lin and not J.J. Abrams, there's a lot less lens flare. A lot less. There was, like, some of the beginning, like, Justin, he's like, ah, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's about all the time that we have uh, for Nerd of the Third Power this week. Uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, you know, we've covered a lot of ground today. Um, there's so much more to talk about with Star Trek, but I mean, honestly, to try and go into every single thing, we'd be here all night, and uh, some of us have lives. Yeah, so sound off in the comments. You know, sound off in the comments. Tell us, tell us what you think is your favorite Star Trek moment or series. What you think Star Trek has done in the wor- to the world and to your life. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So go ahead. Sound off. We love hearing from you guys. So uh, that's all the time that we have for Nerd to the Third Power this week. We will see. We will see you next week. As always, I'm Doctor Gonzo. I'm the cat. I'm Brian. And I'm Skyblaze. All right, we'll see you next week. Taka, play us out. 